We've finished our journey through the Proverbs in the summer series, and now we're starting a new series. So for those of you who like to look ahead, as good students often do, you should have seen on the bulletin, it said, Living Hope, a study in 1 Peter. So we will be in 1 Peter. It's uh, a letter written by Peter to uh, the first churches, first century churches, in the, towards the back of your Bible. So as you're thumbing there, uh, we'll start with a question to kind of give us a, give us the mind of Peter as he was writing this letter to these churches. Uh, of course you have, but I'll ask anyway. Have you ever had one of those updates from a friend where they say, I got good news and I got bad news? You're like, okay, and you got to decide what you want to hear first. I thought of my own most recent example of that this summer, as some of you know, uh, my family and I were away, we were visiting my grandma, and my wife gets a call from her sister, and her sister was watching our dog, and she says, I got, I got bad news. Your dog ran away. But there was good news. We found her, so praise God. But there's bad news. She got hit by a car, so. But <laughs> there's good news. She didn't die. That's good. But <laughs> she might lose her leg. But there's good news. She's got three other legs. So, kind of. I was talking to a guy at first service. He said, my dog just lost her leg, and they do fine with three legs. Um, our dog was able to even, as good news often does, it prevailed in that she's absolutely fine, didn't lose anything but a little bit of fur, and uh, it was great. So, why do I share that? It is a device that God has given us when we're going through dual realities to life. Oftentimes, news hits us and life unfolds in ways that are good and bad at the exact same time, and that is a device that we have to allow the good to be a counterbalance to the bad. And it is all over life where you have to be able to, in going through circumstantial difficulties, find something to stay hopeful about in the good. And that is essentially the letter that Peter is writing to these churches. He's going to acknowledge that to be a believer at their time and their location and their uh, position of the world was really hard. But he's going to overwhelm their difficulties with incredible great news. And it won't even compare. The great news that he shares does not compare to the difficult reality that they're living in. And with that lens, Peter is writing to the churches that he's addressing in his letter. And he writes to the church of all time. The, the gospel will always land on the, the soil of your heart and the condition of your life and the time that you live in to bring incredible and great rejoicing news into a circumstance that is sometimes troubling, and it really won't change until you get the other side of this life. And with that lens, I want to read the first six verses of this letter that we're going to be studying from now until Christmas. So if you haven't read the letter, uh, take some time to absorb it. And we're really going to zone in on the first two, just the introduction of the letter as we kind of do a flyover of what we're going to be looking for as we study this, this letter that Peter wrote. But I want to go all the way into where Peter acknowledges the dual reality that this 
that these people are living in. So we start in verse 1. It says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the knowledge of God the Father in sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace be multiplied. This is the introduction from Peter to the churches. Here's the point. And then he says, here's some incredible news as to what's worth rejoicing over as he writes these people. Verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Incredible news for all who believe. You've been born again by the power of God who reserves you through your faith all the way till you get to heaven, and then there's an inheritance waiting for you that is indescribable. It is, it is something that, without words, Peter just says it's there and it's more precious than gold and nothing can take it from you and it'll never fade away. It's undefiled. And with all of that, we bless God and say, here's the reality, verse 6. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. So we'll spend our time in this talking about both dual realities that exist right now in this sanctuary as we praise sometimes through tears for some of you in real time. We'll talk about the purpose of God allowing these trials. And we will ultimately take from what Peter is offering these believers and, and receive it for ourselves. We will go through the life that we're living with living hope that the good news actually far outweighs the trouble. That there is far more reason to greatly rejoice than to be grieved by the trial. And how do we get there? Well, we're going to be studying that for our time in the, the book of 1 Peter. But this morning, uh, I want to look at a little bit of the backdrop as to why Peter was writing this to begin with. What was animating the lives of the people that would receive this? And then they would be reading it out on their gathering like we're doing today. What, what were they going through that, that compelled Peter to say, i got to write these guys a letter. i gotta, I got to send them some encouragement. I want to share a little bit of the backdrop. And I want you to tell me if you can relate to any of this. We see a clue to the backdrop in verse 1. It says, pilgrims of the dispersion. Now, the dispersion is a word that was typically used to describe a period of the history of the children of Israel where they were scattered due to some outside empire coming through, conquering Israel, ransacking Jerusalem, and then taking them out to different regions of the newly conquering empire. So we think of Assyria, we think of Babylon. And Peter is calling upon that description of the history of the people of God to consider what's happening to them in an empire that they live in now, the Roman Empire. And I want to describe what those believers were living in and see if this sounds at all familiar to 
why we should be reading this letter and thinking, oh, wow, this is so relatable. Uh, these believers were, were living in now the new superpower of the day, the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire had the best, wealthiest, richest economy. They had great, vast amounts of wealth that they uh, used to distribute and raised up commerce and businesses was thriving. The Roman Empire was the most powerful military at the time. Maybe of all time. They were the, the top dog of the empires of the history of the world. And they were expanding far beyond their central power as the most powerful uh, empire of the day. The Roman Empire, because they were able to expand so wide and so vast, they became very culturally diverse. They were religiously diverse. They were politically diverse and ethnically and racially diverse. And they had, in this, become an empire that was being pulled at the seams. And there was all sorts of competing interests as to what was the proper way to live within the empire. And the nation was becoming divided, and the church lived within that time. Does that sound familiar at all to something you could relate to for our time? We live in a place that is blessed and powerful and mighty and wealthy and rotten on the inside, becoming so pulled at the seam with all the different debates on how we should live and how we should worship and what we should believe and what's worth fighting for and what the political way is and what the religious way is. And in their day, there was someone at the center of all those debates that said, you know who's really to blame? It's those people that don't fit in anywhere. It's those people that don't really take part in the religious festivals when we honor our pagan gods, and they, they don't take part in all of the ways that we, we try to do our, our commerce and, 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 and bend the knee to Caesar and also honor the, the patron gods and the deities. And they're morally rigid, and they became a bit of a socially marginalized group. And maybe for the first time in a long time, we're living in part of our little empire where the finger is starting to be pointed at those people that don't really fit in. And so Peter writes to them, and the Holy Spirit speaks to us, that in a time where the empire seems to be so full of tension and it's pressing in on the people of God, there is a way forward with hope. There is a way to find God's design in all of it that this would not be a time where we just grit our teeth to survive or try to figure out how we're going to take back our status as the central pieces of the empire. But look to God and say, God, what are you doing to give us the living hope to keep standing in the calling that you have for your people? And so we'll, with that lens, kind of study this letter as written to us. But before we do, we're, we're marching towards next week when, when Peter presents to us this blessing of having living hope in the resurrection of Christ. Before he does that, he outlines the introduction. So we're going to call this message the introduction to hope. 
the things that Peter is offering as the very beginning of the letter, first week in our series, as a way for us to say, Lord, we want to have hope for the times we live in that, that lives beyond a, an economy or a political figure or a, a religious festival. We want to have a hope that goes so far beyond our time. How do we do that? Well, we're going to look at it in three ways. By just looking at the first two verses of Peter and flying over the book, we're going to look at our place, God's purpose, and Peter's main point for this morning. So our place, God's purpose, and Peter's main point. Uh, our place. Just as sure as you're living in a dual perspective with rejoicing and trials happening at the same time, Peter is helping them understand that they're a bit out of place. There, there's a tension even within their own standing in the Roman Empire. He, he calls them the people of the dispersion. They're scattered. And once again, something maybe you can relate to. In some ways, we're experiencing a little bit of scattering of the people of God right now. It is week by week that I meet young people and families and uh, outsiders who are either visiting our city or moving here because they're like, hey, we didn't know where we fit in at the city that we were living in. You know, the, 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 the surrounding culture and the surrounding political way of life and the surrounding city that we lived in was pressing so hard that we just needed relief, so we're here. So some of you are people of the dispersion right now. Boise, Idaho is like your, your new way to say, I'm living for God in a brand new way. People of God are scattered. Welcome to Boise if that's you. First service, they were like, yep, that's me for sure. And in that, there's two statuses that you bring with you. That all of us, as we look for our place in the tension of the world that we live in, there are two things that could be called part of our identity in our placing by God. Look what Peter says in verse 1. He says, to the pilgrims, he names all the regions in modern-day Turkey, and then he says in verse 2, and to the elect. Two things happen simultaneously. And those two statuses are the source of your rejoicing and your grieving. And they are at odds with each other, but they're both happening at the exact same time. You are, in fact, pilgrims and sojourners on this side of heaven. Uh, the, another word for it is exiles. The people of God are not home wherever they exist. We are here as pilgrims, sojourners, and exiles. But at the same time, it says that we are elect. That's great news. What does elect mean? It's that God chose us. Here's how Peter draws out the tension as, as we continue flying over the, the, the book. It says in chapter 2, Coming to him as living stones rejected by men, but chosen by God. That's your status. That is the dual reality of the life that you live. If you have given your life to Christ and he has given you newness of life, you are elect and you are exiles. And this is part of the foundation of having a living hope to stand. There's great rejoicing in the fact that God chose us. We are elect. That's what it means. Have you ever been chosen for anything? It feels so good. You were playing kickball and you got chosen. Some of you are like, I didn't get chosen at all. It feels sad, doesn't it? I'm sorry for you. Uh, husbands and wives, it's like you looked at each other and it's like, that's the one. I choose you. And Peter's saying to these people, God chose you guys. 
He chose you, the, the dispersed people throughout the empire. You're his. He chose you. You're elect. And then he said how God chose. And, and this can sometimes be a, 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 something that people zoom too far into. But it's worth looking at as a reason to rejoice with hope. It says, verse 2, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. So he chose us according to his foreknowledge of the times they were in and the people they would become. And people can zoom in on that and say, okay, well, what does this mean? If God chose us according to his foreknowledge, does, what does that do with me receiving God? The Gospel of John says that for anyone who receives him, he, becomes, he gives them the right to become children of God. And there is a tension. Do we choose God? Does God choose us? Does foreknowledge mean that God, knowing what will unfold from the beginning to the end, the Alpha and Omega, knows exactly who will choose him, and then he just chooses them right back? That's like the Back to the Future 2 plot line, really. I just watched that movie, and I was like, that's kind of like foreknowledge. There's a lot of theology in Back to the Future 2. So remember the plot. He goes into the future. He takes back a sports almanac. He says, okay, I know all the scores now. I know exactly what games to choose, because... I'm just going to choose the ones that are already won. Well, that's not really God's care and love and design. If he's just responding, he has no say in the matter. He's just responding to how do we respond to him? Here's maybe a better way to rejoice in the foreknowledge of God's choosing. Consider how God chose the nation of Israel. Look what it says in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 7. The Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any other people, for you were the least of all the people, but because the Lord loves you, and because he would keep an oath which he swore to your fathers, so the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of bondage, from the hand of Pharaoh of Egypt. The, the choosing of God and the foreknowledge that, that Peter is describing is to, to recall and remind us and help us understand that God is intimately involved and loves the people that he chose. It is a choice because he purposed you. He wanted you to be part of the time and the place that you lived in to do a specific thing for his plan and his glory. This is good news. Maybe a better way to think of it is in those photos that we just saw of the, of the people in need of wheelchairs. One way for us to think about God's choice rooted in love and foreknowledge, I want you to imagine a, a father or a mother going through the adoption process. And that is a picture of choosing who will be part of your family. And I want you to imagine that this father or mother and these, this, this couple looks out and they see a child that has special needs. A child that is in need of adoption because of, of tragedy that has bestruck someone and they, they need help. And for the rest of their lives, they're going to need surgeries and they're going to need therapy and they're going to need care and they're going to need whoever adopts them to be fully engaged with caring for them for the rest of their life. And isn't that beautiful that people do that? That people say, knowing what your life is going to need, I want to be your father. Knowing the, the condition of your life, knowing the, the trials and the various grievings that you're going to go through with your state of life, I choose you to be in my family. 
What a wonderful moment of rejoicing for all of us who have been born again to a newness of life because God chose us and we responded by believing in him. And he says, I know every need you're going to have. I know the various trials. I know all of your special needs. I know the ways you're going to have doubt. I know the ways you're going you're to turn your back at times. I know the ways you're going to fall down. I know the ways that this world is going to press in on you. I am not off my throne. With foreknowledge, I chose you just the way you are, and I have a plan and a purpose to use you for my glory. And who is this written by? From Peter. <laughs> man, what a beautiful sentiment coming from the man who denied Christ coming from the person that Jesus chose to be the apostle, that he would minister and disciple and speak to and show so much grace and forgiveness as a man who failed Christ and yet found the forgiveness of Christ to be sufficient in becoming one of the mouthpieces of the gospel. And Jesus can say, I chose him. I knew what he would do. I knew what he would go through. I knew the trouble by which he would befall. God is sovereign over your life. God knows your failures. He knows your fears. He knows the various trials that we will fall into. And Peter says, and with foreknowledge, he chose it all. He chose every aspect of it. To be your father in this time for his glory. And you're also exiles. You're the elect. Praise God for that. What was just preached, rejoicing, good news, gospel message that God has adopted you as a child, knowing all of your weakness. And your other dual identity is that you live out of place in the world that you're in. You are a pilgrim. You're a sojourner. You ever feel sometimes like you just can't get settled into this place? It's like time and time again, it's one trial after the other, and you're like, I don't feel like I'm ever going to actually just grab root and be home. You're in exile. You ever feel like you don't belong in any one of the tribes that exist and is competing interests for the future of the empire? You're in exile. What does exile mean? We're chosen is exciting. It's like you got picked first for kickball. What's exile? You got kicked out. <laughs> you couldn't, they didn't want you to play in the game. They don't respect you. They don't like you. They don't love you. Welcome to your dual citizenship as the elect exiles of God. And so the question is, if this is our place, what's God's purpose for this? Why is he designed it this way? Look what it says. Verse 2, elect according to the foreknowledge of God in sanctification of the spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. So people try to break down the mechanics of how God's choice and man's responsibility works, the how is somewhat mysterious. The why is very clear. Why God has chosen you, why God has brought you underneath the preaching of the gospel this morning to give a response and to live for him as his chosen people, Peter states right away, his purpose is made clear so that you can have living hope that it is not without purpose. He says, for sanctification of the Spirit. 
and for obedience to Christ. You have a twofold purpose in this time. Sanctification, what does that mean? Now, Peter, in an introduction, we could be giving whole conferences on all the theology that, that Peter is sharing with us this morning. Sanctification is the power of God to pour his spirit on you, to change you from the inside out, to take you from sinner to righteous, from unholy to holy, to cleanse us by the washing of his word and the power of his spirit. That is the process of sanctification that will be happening in all of our lives until we see him face to face. But it's also a picture, once again, in a remembrance of how God chose the nation of Israel and set them apart, his own special people. Sanctification is also a way to say that God has taken certain people from the empire and called them his own to say, this is what it looks like when people obey me. This is what people, it looks like when people live for me. This is what my people will do in response to all of the various trouble and trials and grieving of this world. Sanctification is to be holy and to be set apart for God's glory. We look at the flyover. 1 Peter chapter 2. You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. This is why I chose you. I'm going to take you from darkness and put you into the light that there will be a special people, a chosen generation that shows the world what it's like to honor God. So an exercise in sanctification, welcome to the gathering. You ever wondered why we do this every single week? We're coming in and we're being set apart every Sunday morning to say, God, we love you. We worship you. We praise you. We are set apart for you. We look to you as our hope. We look to you for our purpose. We look to your word for truth that we can stand on week after week and then morning by morning in your own life. Set us apart more and more and more. We just want to live for you. To be set apart was when we were singing. Don't you find it odd that we wake up on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. and just start singing to God? That's not what most of our city is doing right now. We're the, we're the, the set apart people. And then he says this in chapter 2, verse 11. Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts, which war against the soul. Have your conduct honorable among Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works, which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. So not only are we set apart as we praise to the honor of his glory, but we live set apart lives. And in all of the social debates about how we're supposed to live and who we're supposed to give our allegiance to and what life in the empire is supposed to look like, there's these one, this one group of people that live in such a way according to the power of the Spirit in us that points everyone to our God, to our Caesar, to our Lord. To be sanctified is to live in such a way where people say, tell me more about this God that you believe in. You are different in your hope and in your patience, and in your kindness, and in your love. So to be set apart is to honor God with our worship and our praise, and to honor God with our lives, so that people would know that we're different kind of people. We're a different type of, of, of citizen in the empire. And that's a reminder that what we have is supposed to look different than the empire. 
with all of the grieving trials and the trouble and the style and the cultural norms and the, the, the moral compromises and all of the things that the outside world is just happy to live in because they do whatever they want according to the winds of doctrines for this age in the empire, the church looks different. We, we don't play by the same playbook. We don't want the trouble to come in and divide the church. We don't want to try to keep up with what the world says is cool and what the world says is fashionable and what the world says is permissible. We are people who want the Holy Spirit to cleanse us more and more and more to bring us to the standard of life that was set by Christ. To be set apart is to look different. And then it says, for obedience. We're in two verses in Peter. We're talking about election. We're talking about sanctification. Telling everyone to be obedient. This might just be one week series and we're done. Obedience. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God, the Father, in sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. He goes on to say in verse 13, Therefore gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ as obedient children, not conforming yourselves to former lusts as in your ignorance. The Holy Spirit does its work to make us new people and we're obedient to Christ. And one of the pictures of this was, and it's a lot easier to sing this than to live it, but when we said, you reign over all. That was a beautiful moment of worship. There's a whole choir of people, believers born again to the newness of life, rejoicing, saying, you reign over all, including our hearts. The next song that we sang said, we hail you as king. The Roman Empire bends the knee to Caesar. We only pledge our allegiance to you as the king of kings. You sang that. And what you are declaring with your worship is how you live out your worship in obedience to Christ. He does not reign over your life. He does not reign over your heart. And he is not your king if you leave here and do whatever you want. And so we preach obedience unto Christ. And I will say, obedience unto Christ, if there's anything that's landing, it's like, man, it just seems like I'm walking into a spiritual straitjacket. You don't have a problem with obedience. You have a problem with Christ. Most people are very obedient. The, the, the main default setting of the human heart is a lot more like a Pharisee than an anarchist. Most people want to know the rules and they want to follow them. And then we bend the rules by like five miles per hour. And you guys are like, I go 10. <laughs> but we all try our best to stick to the rules. Even in the empire, there are rules of the empire. You get up, Caesar is Lord. These are the pagan gods. These are the feasts. This is how we have fun, and this is pleasure. And even in our empire, there are all sorts of ways that people are obedient to the American empire. That's why if you vote a certain way, you mostly think the same things about everything. And if you're young, you, you can divide your hashtags down the middle of what you support, what flag you raise, what holidays you celebrate, and what cause you're for. And there's a new cause every week, and it's like, this is the one, this is the one, you're like, tell me what to do. I bend the knee to the culture. 
I bend the knee to my political party. Because you are obedient. And what Peter is saying, then and now, is that we are obedient to one thing, to one person. Now, all of our obedience, it's like, even if, even if this goes against the grain of culture, even if this goes against the grain of politics, even this goes against the grains of what's morally permissible, even this goes against the grain of all of the things that this culture is obedient to, Christ is king. We are obedient to Christ and Christ alone. And that is the mission. It is whether or not you live in a thriving and living church, whether or not you have a family that is aimed towards a life of living hope or a life that is just always burdened by grieving and various trials, it is whether or not your worship lives in the sanctuary and in the streets, your living hope lives and dies on your obedience to Christ. It is, it's the mission of every single one of us. And so your place, elect exiles, God's purpose, sanctified obedience. Now we come to the final introduction to hope, which is Peter's point. Look what he says at the very end of his introduction. Grace to you and peace be multiplied. Now, to be fair to just the nature of letters, first century writing, this is just a, a common greeting grace and peace. Dear church, greetings and salutations. Grace and peace. And yet he says that the grace and peace be multiplied to you at the very beginning of the letter. And if you go to the very end, he's going to tip his hand as to why he wrote everything that we're going to learn. 1 Peter chapter 5, I have written you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God in which you stand. I like other translations say, I'm, I'm writing you briefly to encourage you in the grace that you stand on. That's his point that there is going to be a trial and a difficulty to your life. You are chosen by God. He is not off the throne. His sovereignty reigns. He is good. And he loves you with foreknowledge of everything that's going to unfold, your failures and your weaknesses. You're in exile. You're going to be pressed by the left and by the right, by the legalist and the immoralist by the church tradition and the church progressive. And we are going to be people of living hope if we stand firm in grace. Again, written by Peter. Peter stepped out in the water. Peter sunk. Jesus said, you're the rock. Jesus said, you're Satan. Peter confessed Christ. Peter denied Christ. Peter fell. Peter was restored. And Peter says, stand on grace. 
in the trial and in the trouble and in the culture that's tense and in the church that's, that's nervous and divided at times, grace, grace, grace and peace abound. You know what I've found as you, as you just desire to live with the sanctification of the Holy Spirit and obedience to Christ, God will provide the grace. How many of you have stepped out in faith and done something you're like, I can't believe that happened. I can't believe I survived that. I can't believe we made it through. Stand in the power of God's grace. We're going to be studying this letter from now until Christmas. We're going to be focusing all our attention on living out the hope that we have in God. We're going to be mindful of our status as God's chosen people and the world's rejected people. We're going to have things to rejoice in and we're going to have things that just remind us of various layered troubles. And week by week by week, we come and we worship him still in the grace of God. So we rejoice because of this living hope we have and the life we have in Christ. We're going to end by taking communion. It says, obedience to Christ and the sprinkling of his blood. For those of you who believe, you stand under the banner of his blood, making you righteous. You are in the family because he gave his life for you. He cleansed you from your sin. If you are listening, you came in, you think, I just, I'm just a visitor. We're talking about God choosing me. How do I know if he chose me? Well, he brought you here to hear this incredible message of his love. He brought you here to let you know that there's a way to walk through this life with hope for eternity. He brought you here and he allowed you to listen to a message of a God that saves people and uses their trial for good and his glory and as a purpose for your life. He has chose you to listen to all of that. And if there's an inkling of desire to respond by saying, God, pick me, choose me. receive him and he will give you a right to be called a children of God receive him by receiving his body and receiving his blood as it's passed it is the foundation of the hope that we stand on a living hope through the resurrection of Christ through the grave we will remember that now as the elements are passed around